podcast from the ARC Insider, the Africa-focused podcast, offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of ARC, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs, and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Good to see you again. And good to see you, Karen. We're now at podcast number 37. Number it's 37, unbelievably. I know. <laughs> Once we hit 40, we absolutely have to have a party. I think so. I think we have to have a road trip. 40 is coming of age these days, of course. Yes, exactly. It's a new 50. Well, Tara, without further ado, we've got a great guest on our podcast later today, haven't we? We've got a veteran Kenyan journalist who back in 2007 was forced to go into hiding outside the country during those violent clashes at the time. Now, as Kenya heads to the poll, we'll be talking to that man, he's called Paul Ilado, about how much the electoral landscape has changed in Kenya since then and whether the contest to run East Africa's powerhouse is now more about class than ethnicity. Really looking forward to that one. You and I both very, very strongly affiliated with Kenya. But let's first take a look at some of the stories that have happened since our last podcast. A Russian missile attack on the southern city of Odessa has injured at least six people, including a child. Odessa is home to Ukraine's biggest port, and is crucial to exporting desperately needed grain to the rest of the world. Here in West Africa, where the Malian army says it has repelled a terror attack on its main military base just outside the capital, Bamako. The president's announcing several measures to address the energy crisis in the country. It includes the scrapping of licenses for private energy distributors to supply the electricity grid and facilitate importing energy from neighboring states. Tunisia's president has been celebrating his apparent victory in a referendum on a new constitution that gives him almost unlimited powers. Kais Said has promised that Tunisia will now enter a new phase after what he described as a decade of political deadlock and economic decay. Tonight, at least three UN peacekeepers and at least 12 demonstrators are killed in escalating anti-UN protests in eastern DR Congo. Unrest spread from Goma to Beni and Butembo with crowds attacking the Monisco mission and accusing of doing little to tackle regional threats. Well, Karen, some interesting stories mm. there. Um, but actually, one of the things I wanted to focus on this week is the high-profile visits that have taken yeah. place across Africa. And for me, the particularly interesting one is France's Emmanuel Macron, yes. President Macron's visit into West Africa. Yeah. Because actually what's very disappointing is that actually it really represents a reversal in French policy. Um, you know... It's very striking that his visit is to Cameroon, Benin and to Guinea-Bissau, very mm. much countries that are members of the CFA Franc zone, very much part of the old Franc-Afrique, as we call, including this is the currency zone, you mean? Yeah, the currency zone. It's the currency zone. Yeah, yeah that currency zone that actually binds uh, 14 countries in West Africa to France because yeah. it's backed by the French Treasury. But it's kind of the old post-colonial France that that actually the young people, you know, the story of Africa is so much about youth and young demographics and 
you know, young people across Fran Francophone West Africa are deeply resentful of France's continued, uh, continued hold over Francophone West Africa. But so it's very, and, and actually Macron has been very, has heard that and was very, in his first term, was incredibly sensitive to those criticisms yeah. and sought to modernise French. It was no longer Franc-Afrique, it was France and Africa. Mm. And so he sought to have equal foreign relations with uh, the heads, you know, with the heads of state and the foreign ministers of those countries. But since Russia's aggression, which has also been felt right across Africa, he's changed his tune. And really, he, you know, he, you know, what he was trying to do in first term was diversify relationships, build relationships with the Anglophone big economies, mm. Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya. His first visit is to Cameroon and to Paul Beer, the president of Cameroon. Yeah who has been in power since 1984 and represents really the old guard of, uh, of, of, of African politics, mm. kind of anti-democratic, you know, controlling, etc. Um, but the reason he's done that is because only in the last month, uh, Russia and Cameroon have signed a, a military deal, a military mm -hmm. accord, that obviously then steps on France's traditional um, uh, security strategic role yeah. in West Africa. Yeah. And that's a step too far. So unfortunately, Russia's, uh, 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 Russia's aggression, you can see it as actually pushing France back into a sort of neo-colonial relationship rather than the one that Macron was trying to foster, which was of new democracies, uh, greater freedom and and in, indeed he was talking about uh, freeing uh, freeing Africa from the clutches of the French Treasury um, with the eco a new currency yeah. that would be would be held in West Africa. But anyway, so disappointing to see. We we'll talk about Russia in a minute, but uh, of course Mali, yeah. one of the countries that uh, that Macron visited, um, and in the news as well because we're seeing a resurgence of violence in Mali. Yes, um, and even as we record this podcast, the news has come through that um, I think some fifteen French, uh, fifteen uh, Malian soldiers have been uh, have been killed in an upsurge of Islamist extremist attacks uh, in that country. So the, you know, and the reliance that the Malian, the new government or the coup leaders have placed in the Russian mercenary Wagner group doesn't seem to be bearing fruit. And yeah. in fact, the Islamists are gaining ground. We've yes. been talking about high profile mm -hmm. visits. There's obviously been a lot of chatter about the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov's Africa tour. I think the best headline has to go to the Daily Maverick newspaper in South Africa. It ran an op-ed entitled From Russia with Lavrov, a play on the title of the famous James Bond <laughs> film. You and I are old enough uh, to remember that film, uh, Tara. Yes. I digress, but Russia's foreign minister has been to Egypt, the Republic of Congo, Uganda and Ethiopia on a visit which, let's face it, has sent strategic communications advisers in Western capitals in the global north into overdrive because they're seeking to counter Russia's narrative about elevated food prices globally, which are affecting 
Africa disproportionately. Now, Russia's position is that soaring grain prices in this part of the world are the direct result of Western sanctions. The West's stance is that Russia is weaponizing food as part of its broader war in Ukraine. Now, on this charm offensive, uh, Sergei Lavrov sought to thank some of Africa's leaders, most notably Uganda's Yoweri Museveni, for not turning their backs on the superpower which supported many of Africa's liberation struggles. But it does seem that the Russian foreign minister failed to recognise the fact that more African nations supported the UN resolution uh, condemning Russian aggression in Ukraine last year than abstained or opposed to it. I think it was 27 African states in favour. So there's been a lot of geostrategic chatter going on, and this is always the stuff that feeds your and my brain, I know that. But it's interesting that um, opposition figures from Uganda, Tanzania, Zimbabwe have been writing jointly in some of the newspapers here to warn that, and I quote, there's a real danger that those on the continent threatened by democracy will emulate a Russian model, both militarily and through proxies, such as the Wagner Group, which you mentioned, to stay in power. And in doing so... Uh, may violate human rights. I'm speaking to you from South Africa, which feels incredibly conflicted in many ways. It, it prides itself, on the one hand, on its democratic credentials, yet feels very much indebted to Russia for its support in opposing apartheid. And it's interesting, you know, South Africa used to be considered a great leader when it came to rallying the, the, the troops, if you like, uh, not literally, yes. but figuratively in Africa, on the big ticket issues. But, you know, South Africa really is lacking any kind of leadership on the Russia-Ukraine's front uh, because it seems to be handcuffed to the past. As are many countries. And, of course, we are also seeing in Sudan, for example, just how yes. Russia's presence is very prominent there. So it is a lot of the countries that have had long-standing links to what I have to say is old Russia, because mm. this is a neo-imperialist Russia that we're talking about, um, an anti-democratic, very much uh, dictatorial approach, which is an anathema to a lot of African countries and a particular anathema to, say, the country that we're going to be talking about now, which is has got an amazing, uh, evolving democracy, Kenya. Yes, that's right. But I guess, mm. you know, the global north and western leaders can't take it for granted that they'll just assume that uh, African nations will throw their weight behind Ukraine and basically mm. uh, buy that narrative. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. there are such strong links, but they're also defence contracts, their nuclear contracts. I mean, Russia's yes. got a big, big foothold here. Maybe not as big as China, but it has a lot of sway. Oh, it has. And it's built that up very quietly. It is also buying a lot of gold out of Mali and, mm. uh, 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 and, and Sudan. But I also think there's another aspect of this. There is a real desire, I think, in, my, in many governments and amongst the sort of African political and business elite that really want to see an autonomous political position yeah. that is influenced as Africa chooses to decisions that Africa wants to make itself and not necessarily forced to be part of one side or another. No longer a so, bipolar world, um, and, yeah. A bipolar world, but unfortunately a bipolar world is now coming. And so ultimately, as we've said before, African governments will have to decide. Absolutely. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and my colleague, Tara O'Connor. 
Our guest today is a veteran Kenyan journalist and editor of the Radio Africa group, Paul Ilado. Paul has been something of a face of both Kenyan and international media for many years and is perhaps associated for most of his work with the Nairobi Star newspaper, although his career has expanded way beyond that. As a man who's forced into hiding for his reporting during the violent elections in Kenya of 2007, Paul is well positioned to give us an insight into how the Kenyan electoral landscape has changed as we record this with major elections in Kenya just around the corner. Paul... Welcome to the Ark Insider podcast. Oh, Karen, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to see you again. We used to work together many, many years ago. Um, I'm delighted to be able to introduce my colleague Tara O'Connor, who's speaking to you from France. And hello, Paul, and welcome to the Ark Insider. Hello, um, Tara, and thank you as well for having me. It's a pleasure uh, meeting you. Great pleasure to meet you too. Paul, we're really lucky to have you because I know we've got an election just around the corner and you've got a busy diary, but it's being billed as a high-stakes race between Vice President William Ruto and his boss, Uhuru Kenyatta's anointed um, one, who is the veteran politician Raila Odinga. He's having his fifth attempt at securing the top job. Now, Kenyan politics is a bit like musical chairs because at one time, Ruto and Odinga were allies and Odinga and Kenyatta were sworn rivals. Now, for people who are unfamiliar with Kenyan politics, this can be rather confusing. Can you just explain that relationship for us and just give us an idea, are there clear constituencies that the two main contenders, Raila Odinga and William Ruto, actually represent? Thank you very much, Karen, um, for that very good question. Good in the sense that, you know, we are in a very confused environment, like you rightly pointed out. Uh, if you look back where this started. Um, 2002 is the first time Uhuru Kenyatta ran for president. And at the time, he was heavily supported by William Ruto, then a member of KANU. Uh, KANU was the party of the late President Moi. They fell apart in 2003 uh, because then Uhuru um, was unhappy with Ruto trying to take over the party from him. 2007, um, Uhuru went back to Kibaki's side. Uh, Raila and Ruto were on one side. Ran for election. I remember how the election went, very controversial. Many people lost their lives. 2013, um, um, it was an, sort of an holy alliance between President Kenyatta and uh, William Ruto. Came together mainly because of ICC. That was their rallying call. That's the reason why they came together to try and defeat, you know, ICC. Paul, just to stop you, the ICC is the International Criminal Court. Both uh, William Ruto and Uhuru Kenyatta at one point in the dock faced with charges which were later dropped. Yes, they were facing very serious charges, crimes against humanity um, resulting from the 2007 election. Um, but then those charges were later dropped uh, although for William Ruto, the case was not dropped. Uh, what happened was the case was withdrawn and the prosecution has made it very clear that if they have any emerging new evidence, they will always be able to bring back the case. So then they went into government 27, 2015, you know, Huru Kenyatta was, uh, was uh, his case dropped at that point. Um, and then we started to see a shift in, in, in their relationship. Leading up to 2017, again, a very uh, hotly contested election uh, between President Kenyatta and Raila Odinga at the time, we always used to hear behind the scenes that uh, 
um, uh, Raila was speaking to Uhuru quietly. Uh, they were cutting a deal, but no one really could say it uh, publicly. Uh, so fast forward, the election is done. Um, the Supreme Court nullifies the election. Uh, Uhuru Kenyatta runs and Raila Odinga boycotts the election. Two months later, after Uhuru Kenyatta is sworn in, uh, guess who emerges and shakes hands with Mr. Kenyatta? It's Raila Odinga. And I think now that is what has shaped this election because after the handshake, um, you now had, you know, opposition working with government, people in government, you know, behaving like opposition and became extremely confused. So you have a deputy president who is sitting in the office but criticizing the same government that he's serving. You have an opposition leader who um, can't quite criticize the government because he's in alliance with the president. Now, at the end of the day, we just soldiered on. They tried to introduce some constitutional amendments. They were defeated uh, because the court then rejected those amendments. So that is what has led us to where we are now. So we have a situation that doesn't have very clear uh, principles. You don't know how what these people stand for. But if you look back at some of them on their personal level and what they have stood for over the years, maybe you can borrow you know, something from that. Ray Lodinga has been you know, a great reformer in his own right uh, for most of his life. At this moment, what the understanding is, is that he just wants to win the election. How he will win at this point, I don't think he cares so much, but he cares he's crossing the line. On the other side, um, Ruto you know, has fallen out with the president um, and believes that this is his time. Um, he believes that he made Uhuru Kenyatta president in 2013, he made him president again in 2017. Therefore, he's got what it takes to win the election. But what's new in all of this is the new constitution, which has had some significant victories, has it not? Yes. This constitution is not entirely new now. It was enacted in 2010. Um, there's been significant change in the governance structure of the country. The new constitution came with another tie of government, which is basically the governance. Uh, the whole idea was to try and decentralize power, you know, from uh, Nairobi to, you know, the other parts of the country. And of course, that for, has followed with resources. Um, and it's transforming lives and, and the countryside quite a bit. But of great importance is that, you know, one, the constitution has attained presidential term limits. Uh, so anyone who wins the election knows they have to go for five years. After that, go for an election again. If they win well and good, that's a final term. That is why Uhuru Kenyatta is leaving office, uh, because he really doesn't have a choice. The constitution is very clear. His term is coming to an end. The beauty as well about that constitution is that it provides, um, it gives parliament a lot of power to check um, the excesses of the executive. And actually, today, the budget is largely made by parliamentarians. Uh, what gives uh, people who are supporting Raila the comfort is that they believe that he's a constitutional um, believer, uh, believes in the constitution, has fought for it. Uh, in fact, he believes in a parliamentary system, um, much more than a presidential system. And so you can see uh, yesteryear's reformers coalescing around uh, Raila Odinga because, you know, they're sort of feeling they're at home with him. Um, William Ruto has had a very interesting career in terms of supporting the constitution. You remember he came through Kanu ranks, um, and Kanu was notorious for defying the constitution uh, in those years and dictatorship. So there's a bit of fear around William Ruto that he may, he may behave like Daniel Arab Moy, you know, the late president, if not worse than that, because after all, he is a creation of Daniel Moy. 
You've talked, Paul, about sort of this rules-based order, which is what the Constitution provides, uh, but you've also sort of set it against a backdrop of a, a very confusing sort of mixed melee of, of Kenyan politics, but somehow it, it does work. I'm trying to get an idea from you as, as what is different with this election. I mean, we worked together back in 2007 when really the country was torn about along uh, tribal lines, along ethnic lines, which were basically manipulated by both sides. Now, it's interesting, both sides um, in this particular race have selected running mates from the Kikuyu ethnic group. And although there isn't an overall majority ethnic group in Kenya, the Kikuyu is a very, very important one. Now, one of them is the veteran human rights lawyer and former justice minister Martha Kuroh. She's running with Raila Odinga. And businessman Rigathika Chagwa from central Kenya is running with William Ruto. Now, I'm just wondering, by making that strategic decision, does that effectively extinguish a certain degree of tribalism among Kenyan politics, and it'll be more of a class-based race, do you think? Or do you think that that is still simmering under the surface? Some of the things that we're seeing on social media does suggest that 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 kind of community division is still there. A lot has changed, Karen. I think one of the things that is very clear, today we we have how many? A few days to the the election. Um, Ten years ago, 15 years ago, we would be extremely involved um, there will be a lot of tension, there will be a lot of violence leading up to this election. I can tell you until today, there hasn't been you know, significant violence. There have been skirmishes here and there, but nothing serious, I mean, nothing to write home seriously. For me, that is a big plus, and that is attributed to many things. One, um, the fact that you know, our leaders ended up at the International Criminal Court, that is acting as a deterrent. Secondly, there has been some sense of maturity in the way in which the, the, the campaigns have been, have been handled. Uh, both sides have uh, you know, conducted their rallies. Um, a few times they've had, you know, police have had to intervene when there's been a bit of tension. And for me, that is a big plus because we didn't see this before. It also suggests that you know, communities are beginning to accept each other. And I say that because Raila Odinga comes from the Luo community in Western Kenya. Uh, the Luos traditionally have had serious fights with the Kikuyus uh, from independence. Today, you have many Kikuyus supporting Mr. Odinga. In fact, Mr. Odinga has made many visits to the Kikuyu land. Uh, you have Kikuyus visiting Luo land um, and saying, you know what, it's, it's, it's Raila Odinga's time. I think for me, that's a big achievement. And you sort of reduced the tensions, you know, and the tribal animosity that has existed over the years. Just on a personal level, how are you feeling at the moment, Paul? Oh, I'm feeling quite uh, confident that this election will uh, come and go. Um, I think that um, uh, the people in power are quite prepared for all the scenarios. So I'm pretty confident that we'll go to an election. Whoever wins, wins. The there's a high chance that uh, whoever loses will go to the Supreme Court and challenge that election. But we also believe that the Supreme Court will be able to rise to the occasion. The Supreme Court, if I may just say something about it, has a new chief justice, a lady. The last two elections were the chief justices were men. um, And, you know, they had their own uh, credentials. Uh, This one also has her own credentials. She's a reformist. uh, She's well-respected. She has new people working with her in the last uh, uh, two years. So you'd expect that um, apart from institutional memory that exists in the Supreme Court, you have, you know, well-known, credible, 
um, fresh faces uh, capable of making an independent decision on their own. We've had both candidates say that whatever the outcome, they will, uh, they will respect the outcome of the election. If they're unhappy, they will go to court. And if the court makes a judgment, they will, expect, they, will, they will respect that judgment. And I think for me, that is good because then it allows the election process to end you know, and stability to uh, continue to exist and allow the new government to you know, settle in. Kenya is Africa's most diverse and most modern economy. And I'm always um, absolutely pleased to tell everybody to boast on Kenya's behalf that actually some 80% of its uh, energy needs are supplied by renewables. And yet the massive infrastructure spending leaves the country in quite considerable debt. You know, Kenyatta's legacy is a country laden with debt, but with great infrastructure, with better infrastructure. Yes. Um, of course, the economy is at the center of this election. Uh, you can see both sides um, making the effort to try and respond to the existing challenges, but also provide some you know, solutions which they may be able to implement if they come to government. Um, I think on Raila's side, um, his manifesto is looking like he's largely socialist, um, represents continuity, um, you know, it's like a stable hand, um, tried and tested, and that's what they're saying out here, that, uh, you know, if you give him the work, he will do better than Mwai Kibaki, who is largely considered Kenya's most successful, you know, president. Um, and, and, and Raila has said, look, I mean, this issue of debt, you know, he has a plan for it. Um, to try and manage the debt, uh, complete the, pro the projects that have been begun, but not start new ones, so that you know they have breathing space to be able to get the economy to recover. And you can see as well in his social socialist um, plans, I think he plans to try and get the money into the pockets of people. Um, he says, for example, you know, widows, um, you know, uh, people without jobs will be given some allowance every month. Um, you know, where that money is coming from, he says, is, you know, he will seal the corruption loopholes to be able to provide, you know, a circulation of money in the economy uh, so that then people can be able to um, get some gainful, meaningful um, active economic activities. On the other side, William Ruto has said, look, he will renegotiate some of these debts. Um, he wins, he will go to IMF, he'll go to the Chinese, he'll go to everybody who has loaned Kenya money and say, look, can we, can we get a new arrangement uh, so that we can pay off these debts, uh, but don't give us more money? He's been very clear that he doesn't want to borrow new money. Um, he wants to be able to fill the deficit, the budget deficit, locally by expanding the tax uh, bracket um, and getting those people who are not able to pay, who are not paying taxes at the moment to pay the tax, fill up that gap so then he can be able to deliver. The debt situation has been made worse, of course, by the spiraling fuel prices. It's been really, really hard. Uh, government um, has been providing a subsidy. They thought of removing that subsidy, but I think because of elections, they have kept the subsidy. So fuel prices have remained um, a bit uh, manageable. And then there's the staple food, which is uh, maize flour. I mean, that is a big issue. Um, government has had to put in another subsidy uh, so that you know the prices of uh, a two kilogram um, packet of maize flour, you know, can come down to about um, um, a dollar, you know, in, uh, which is what many people live on. 
Um, but that subsidy runs for a month. Um, both sides are promising to find a sustainable way uh, to keep the, the prices of maize meal uh, you know, fairly affordable. Um, we'll wait to see whether that is workable or not. Because at the end of the day, what has happened, and because of COVID, many people don't have you know, sufficient income. Some don't even have jobs at all. Um, so there's a lot of struggle in just you know, keeping people alive. You talk about external factors, Paul. Um, the war in Ukraine obviously having an effect on global food prices. We've had just uh, a charm offensive by the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, across uh, many African countries. Kenya notably excluded from his visiting list. Um, just wondering, what is the sense at the moment in Kenya about uh, Russia's um, stance globally, Russia's stance in Ukraine. We, of course, saw in the UN Security Council Kenya voting with other Western countries and a very muscular and much-reported speech by Martin Kimani at the UN talking about Russia as a colonial power. I mean, where does Russia, where does Kenya stand in that big picture now? Because, you know, it is really dividing up the continent. Yes, Martin Kimani's address to the UN Security Council, of course, um, raised a lot of questions. Um, and it's obvious it's, that's the reason why uh, Sergei did not come to Kenya. Um, but the thing is that these things, um, Kenya does not live in isolation. Whatever happens um, across the world affects them. Uh, the price of wheat has really, really gone up locally um, because, you know, the People who consume a lot of wheat, um, the guys who manufacture alcohol here, import a lot of wheat. Um, and so as a result, in the last uh, few months, they've had to mop up whatever is available locally. Therefore, you know, demand uh, versus supply, you know, factor come in, comes in. Um, and that has had a ripple effect uh, because other than maize meal, Kenyans love, you know, wheat flour. Uh, they make what you call chapati. It's a staple you know, sort of um, um, meal in, in every home. Um, so if they can't afford it, then, you know, there's a problem with that. And you can see the direct correlation between uh, what is happening in Ukraine and the prices that we are facing here. But Russia's blaming sanctions. Is that washing in, in, in Kenya? Is there a, a willingness to buy that argument, do you think? There's divided opinion on who is right and who is wrong and what is causing these, uh, these problems. Um, when the Ukraine war began, I remember the Ukrainian ambassador in Kenya came to see us and said, look, he wants to fundraise for Ukraine. And we said, okay, what do you want to do? We did a campaign for them. Uh, and there is quite a significant amount of money. Um, and for us, that seemed to suggest that there were people who were sympathetic to the Ukrainian situation and were willing to find a way to um, support them in, in one way or the other. And then when Martin Kimani, our ambassador to the UN, now made the statement, we sort of sort of provided clarity on Kenya's position on that war. Um, many people started, you know, sort of swing towards, you know, Ukraine, you know, feeling sorry for them and trying to support in whichever way they could. But I think that issue has been sort of um, swept under the carpet in the last uh, one month or so because of elections. Um, you know, all all the discussions are not about. Uh, the war in Ukraine. They're just, you know, it's a cost of living. People are saying, look, find a solution. The leaders are saying we're finding a solution, even though some of those factors are way beyond us. We can't do anything about the Ukrainian war. We can't do anything about uh, 
the cost of fuel in an international market, but we can find a solution here. So I think what is likely to happen, this issue will probably assume a bit more prominence after the election. And putting you into a corner and journalists hate being put into a corner, Araila Odinga presidency, he was trained in East Germany, strong links to Moscow. Is he likely to be more pro-Russian, do you think? I think Raila is, um, he's, he's been, you know, his father, you know, was close to Russia. Um, in fact, his elder brother, Oburu Odinga, um, went to school in Russia. Uh, so he's got a bit of, um, you know, links towards uh, Russia. But also Raila is a very pragmatic leader. Um, you know, he makes very, um, he makes decisions and you can look at his track record. I think over the years, he's got a very good relationship with the British, the Americans, uh, basically Western countries. In fact, in the last, in 2013, the biggest criticism Raila had was that he was uh, close to the Western powers and that those powers were the ones who were, you know, forcing the, the International Criminal Court to come to Kenya and, you know, um, uh, undertake what he did. Uh, so he has maintained the links. Uh, there's a likelihood that he will have to strike a balance between the East, the Western and Russia. Really, really wonderful canter through Kenyan politics. Thank you so much. An absolute uh, uh, tour de force. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces monthly briefings from around Africa. You can sign up for these at info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.